Good day to you all. Today we embark on part 12 of our series on knowing God. I shared some of these thoughts in a church setting a number of years ago, and back then I titled it, Blessed are the eyes which now see. But today in this shortened version, I've decided to give it the title, From Darkness to Light. I will begin by reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 24 as Jesus is speaking privately with his disciples. It says, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seems good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you, that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you now hear, and have not heard them. End of reading. Now, from the beginning of time, from creation, we get a glimpse of what human history would entail. We see a movement from darkness to light. Even as early as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the second verse in the Bible, it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So we see that whatever the state of things were, it is described as darkness. And then it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So the Word of God entered into, or I should say was invoked into the situation. God said, Let there be light. The Word entered and brought forth light. Whenever and wherever the Word of God enters, there is always a movement from darkness to light. Now later on it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. But shortly after his Word brought forth the light, Adam and Eve ushered in the darkness again, in bringing sin into the world by their disobedience. And that is by the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3. And this spread so rapidly that by the time we get to chapter 6, we read Genesis 6 verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The sin problem had become like a pandemic darkness over the earth. But the prophet Isaiah comes in many years later, and he describes the work that the Messiah would come to do in terms of bringing light into a darkened world. And this is spoken of in the book of Isaiah, but it is cited in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16 by the New Testament writer. And this has to do with the work that Christ would come to do. It says in Matthew 4, 16, The people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. This is a concise summary, dear listener, of the work of Jesus Christ. 
And when he finally showed up, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John chapter 8 and verse 12. So in the word of God, we see that human history is a progressive movement of bringing mankind from darkness back to the light through the word of God. Hence, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18 tells us, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. In other words, a gradual progress into clearer and clearer light. That is God's process of restoring mankind. And primarily, it takes place in the mind, in the thinking. And behind all of this, all along the course of human history, we see a God who is patiently, tirelessly meeting man in the primitive darkness of his understanding and constantly working to bring him back to the light. Man had gone off course, and from the time sin entered, in every generation, God has been patiently working to bring mankind back on course by the infusion of the light of truth, the truth of the gospel of God's love for fallen human beings. Because it is this light, dear listener, that brings healing to the soul. Thus, all the way through history up to this point, this has been God's continuous revealing, the revelation of his love towards us. However, the evil one, the enemy of us all, has been fighting desperately through all the ages to keep people in darkness. And because of his widespread control over the people of the world, he is referred to in one sense as the God of this world. The one that most people seem to want to follow after, to give their loyalty to, and to give their worship to. It is he that is behind all attempts to keep people in darkness of the truth concerning God's glory, God's character. And the Apostle Paul brilliantly sums up his activities, the activities of the devil, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 3 to 4, where he says, But if our gospel is hidden, in other words, if it's not discerned, if it's not received, if it's not understood, he says, If our gospel is hidden, it is hidden from them that are being lost, in whom the God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So notice that he is said to blind not the eyes but the minds. This prevents understanding. This prevents the light of the glory of the gospel, which presents Christ as the image of God, the very reflection of his character from shining into their understanding. But we're now approaching a point in earth's history of which the scriptures foretold that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ will shine through his faithful people and light the whole earth. 2 Corinthians 4, continuing verse 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, speaking about creation, has shined where? In our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, that is the character of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The true revelation comes through Jesus Christ and shines through those who receive it. Its fullness 
will be revealed through the body of Jesus Christ, the people of God on earth who are walking in this light. And the privilege is offered to all, but it is a choice that one must make. God has always been moving in that direction of infusing light, of dispelling light, of shedding light. And this is when the final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is accomplished in the end times. Isaiah wrote, Arise and shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For darkness shall cover the earth, and great darkness the people. And the Lord shall rise upon thee, his glory shall be seen upon thee, and Gentiles shall come to the light, and kings to the brightness of thy shining. Isaiah 60 and verse 1. Notice that we're told that darkness shall cover the earth, and great darkness shall cover the people. Spiritual darkness, that is. And so it is that nowadays when light is being brought forth, the people who should know better think it's darkness. In John 16 and verse 12, Jesus said to his very own disciples, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Why? Their minds were far from where they needed to be, to be able to grasp many of the things that Jesus wanted to reveal to them about the Father, the Father whom he came to reveal. So even the disciples of Christ did not quite understand, and that is why they often asked him questions about those who were afflicted and crippled and blind, etc. Questions about whether God was punishing them for some sin they did or their parents did. For example, in John chapter 9 and verse 2, we read, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why did they ask that question? Because it was commonly believed in those times that any kind of deformity or sickness or disease or misfortune in life was punishment from God for some sin that had been committed, whether by the person themselves or by the parents. But Jesus' answer to their question took them by surprise. He had to be continually overturning their false beliefs about God and bringing them gradually into the light. In the next verse, Jesus answered John 9 verse 3, Neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, the way it reads that the works of God should be made manifest seems to suggest that Jesus is saying that God allowed him to be born blind so that he could now show his works, his power in healing him. But that is not the case either. The word which has been translated as that in the original language is hina, that's in the Greek, that's New Testament was written in Greek. And scholars even now are showing that that is rightly used when making a comparison or a contrast. And that it is more correctly translated, but let the works of God be made manifest in him. Jesus said, look, when you ask who sinned to cause this man to be born blind, you are asking the wrong question. But that is not the work of God but rather it is the result of sin and living in a sin-cursed world. But let me show you the contrast between the works of God and the works of sin. So the correct translation is not so that the works of God may be manifest, but nevertheless, let the works of God be manifest in him. And then Jesus healed the man's sight. Thus, in contrast to the works of sin, which imposes sickness and suffering, 
the works of God was revealed in healing and restoring of the man's sight. That is God's work. So even the disciples had to unlearn a lot of things which they had been taught by their religious leaders in order to learn new things which Jesus wanted to reveal to them. They too had to be brought from darkness to light. In many instances in the New Testament, we see that Jesus was quite often coming up against the wrong kinds of thinking in the mind of his disciples. He was little by little overcoming certain traditions that they had learned from the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious teachers of their day, just like it is today. Moses and Elijah were looked upon as the two great icons of the past. They were referred to as the Law and the Prophets. Moses had written the first five books of the Bible, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. And it is in these first five books where we find the moral law of Ten Commandments written by the finger of God in granite, in stone. In addition to this, we also find in the writings of Moses all the civil laws that God had given them in order to maintain law and order in their societies. And these included laws concerning, you know, settling disputes between the people, administration of justice and stuff like that, dietary laws concerning clean and unclean foods, laws of hygiene to prevent the outbreak of disease among them, and also the ceremonies, the rituals regarding the sacrificial offering of animals. These animal sacrifices were intended to keep fresh in their minds the promise of the Messiah who would one day come to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. So separate from the Ten Commandments, these laws were written in a book called the Book of the Law of Moses. So Moses was regarded as the great lawgiver. And to the Jews also, Elijah was seen as their greatest prophet. And thus, he's used to represent all the writings of the prophets together. So they would refer to all of the Old Testament as Moses and Elijah, or the Law and the Prophets. Their thinking was heavily influenced by their misunderstanding of the Old Testament. A misunderstanding of the Law and the Prophets. So when Jesus started to present to them the true understanding of God, they thought he was doing away with Moses and the prophets. They were thinking, but this is not what we read in Moses and the prophets. For example, Moses told us an eye for an eye, but this man is now telling us love our enemies. He is undermining Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so many of his listeners often thought, this man is bringing darkness to us. He's seeking to destroy or to undermine our whole nation, our culture, our religion. Why? Because their whole identity as a people, their whole religious outlook, was shaped by what was written in the Law and the Prophets, which they themselves did not quite understand clearly as they should. Hence Jesus told them, Think not that I am come to destroy the Law and the Prophets. I am not come to destroy, but rather to fulfill them. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He had come to reveal the God of the Old Testament as he truly is, which they could not see because they were blinded by their own traditions. Another example of how their traditional misunderstandings played out 
is seen in Luke chapter 9. Reading from verse 51, it describes an account of Jesus with his disciples on a long journey heading back to Jerusalem. However, it was getting late and they decided to stop along the way in a village of the Samaritans for the night. Now, the Jews and Samaritans had always been enemies. And the disciples at this point were somewhat tainted, in other words, still infected with these prejudices also. But Jesus saw this as an opportunity to minister to these people in darkness and to give his disciples an example of loving their enemies. This is how it reads, Luke 9 from 51 to 53. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans in that village would not give Jesus and his disciples stay in their village for the night. They were rejected by the Samaritans. And the disciples were livid with anger. They were probably thinking like, how dare these unclean heathens refuse to accommodate the majesty of heaven in their village? According to the Psalms, you, Jesus, you created all things. You created the very ground upon which their village sits. Their whole village needs to be burned to the ground. That was the thinking of the disciples. Notice as the verses continue, verse 54, And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them all, even as Elias did? Notice they said, even as Elijah did. Elias in the New Testament is referring to Elijah in the Old Testament. So they were drawing a reference from the book of Kings where Elijah had a showdown with the pagan priests of Baal worship. When Elijah called on fire, which consumed the sacrifices on the altar, and then later he had the Baal priests slaughtered with the sword, all 450 of them. Now these disciples were familiar with the Old Testament account of these events. And being instructed by their priests, they thought they understood clearly, not knowing, as we do now, that by the time of Elijah, Israel had rejected God's governmental system and had chosen a king to rule over them like the other nations, and that Israel had rejected God's judicial system and also picked up the sword to engage in warfare like the other nations. They thought that this was God's way of doing things, not recognizing that God was just patiently working with them to bring them back to his original way. But to the Jews, Elijah was the greatest of the prophets, and so they believed that the Elijah story showed God as one who gets wrathful and just burns up those who reject him. So the disciples brought this to the attention of Jesus in their request. Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Now I'm sure they must have felt very righteous and very biblical in making this request. After all, they were quoting something from the scriptures. But notice the response of Jesus. Luke 9 verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. In other words, look, you read the scriptures, 
but you don't understand what is really going on in them. The kind of spirit that would make you want to destroy others for rejecting you is not my spirit. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, that is not the spirit of God. That's of the devil. And then he continues speaking in the next verse. He says, for the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. What does this show us? That when God is rejected, he moves on. The Samaritans would have lost their blessing, yes. Whatever happened to them later on, whatever destruction came up on their village later on, would be because they had chosen to reject their opportunity. But God would have no part in the results. God moves on, leaving them in their darkness and in the hand of the one that they wanted to welcome in their village, the demonic forces that were controlling their mind, which only bring destruction. So one of the great challenges in the ministry of Jesus was getting his disciples and the Jewish people at large to change their way of thinking. They had become so steeped in their traditions that they could not see that he was revealing to them a whole new picture of God, a view which was quite different from what they had been taught. He was seeking, dear friends, to bring them from darkness to light. In John 14 and verse 8, one of them asked him, Show us the Father. Jesus responded, Have I been so long time with you and you ask me to show you the Father? When you see me, you see the Father. He was not saying that he is the Father, but that everything that he did was the revealing of the Father to them. In fact, in the next verse, verse 10 of John 14, he said, do you not believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father who dwells in me. He does the works through me. Jesus was saying, everything you see in me is a revelation of the Father through me. But tradition sometimes can be tough to break. Moses represented the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Elijah, who they considered the greatest prophet, represented the writings of all the prophets. And for over a thousand years, their beliefs about God were shaped by these two great icons. A misunderstanding of the writings of the experiences of these men. Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. He said that when they read the Old Testament, they do so with a veil over their eyes. Christ came to remove this veil. But because of the power that these two iconic figures held over their minds, God had to break this spell. He had to break this hold which their false understanding of the Old Testament held upon their minds. But in order to break this stronghold, it was necessary for there to be a special transfer of authority from Moses and Elijah to Christ in their minds. And what I mean by this is God had to show them that these men were merely servants used to do a job. But the real king, the real authority is Christ. And this is what happened in Luke 9, just prior to the incident with the Samaritan village. Jesus and some of his disciples are up in a mountain and he's praying. And notice what happens then. Luke 9, 29 to 35. And as he prayed, 
the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spoke, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. So they saw Moses and Elijah with Jesus, and then Moses and Elijah disappeared, they faded, followed by the voice of God saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Why would Peter say, Make a temple for all three? It's as if they were putting Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. You make a temple for those you worship. But God was making a very important point to them. That they revered these men so much that it was blinding them to what Jesus was trying to show them. In other words, from here on, let your ideas concerning me be shaped not by your understanding of what Moses wrote, not by your understanding of what Elijah the prophets wrote, but by what Christ reveals about me. That is what God was trying to show them. These two must fade into the background and let Christ take center stage. He is the real interpreter of what you have read in the law and the prophets. And thus the voice said, This is my beloved son, hear him. Dear listeners, Jesus was painting a whole new picture of God upon their minds. And he was also revealing to them the truth that sickness, death, pain and destruction does not come from the hands of God, but from the devil and the natural outworking of sin. They had a lot to unlearn and a lot to learn. But he patiently revealed to them the Father in his life and teachings. And he even rejoiced that they had the privilege to see what many prophets and kings desired to understand. It was now theirs, and so it is for us too. Note what he said in the very next chapter, Luke 10, 21. And this was our opening text. We read it again. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and understanding, and you did reveal them unto babes. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son will reveal him. In other words, only by studying the life of Christ, only by looking at Christ, can we get the true revelation of who God is and what he is like in character. Verse 23 and turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which now see the things that you see. For I say unto you, that many prophets and kings desired to see the things which you see, and saw them not, and to hear the things which you hear, and heard them not. 
Jesus was trying to get them to see that he is indeed the final authority, not Moses, not Elijah, and that they should anchor their beliefs in what he is teaching, what he is showing them now, in order that they can be equipped to carry forward the work which he started after he went back to heaven. They needed the truth concerning God. How about you, dear friends? Are you seeing that which Jesus came to reveal about God? Or are you still being blinded by human traditions which are preventing you from seeing the truth that God is love, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all or anything associated with darkness? May our eyes be opened to see, to receive, and to understand. Have a great week, dear friends. Love you all. God bless you all. 